Today's program has been brought to you by Brooklyn Slate, manufacturer of slate cheese boards, coasters, and other fine items. Check them out at www.brooklynslate.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, and welcome to After the Jump. I'm your host, Grace Bonney, and today we're coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You can listen to the show live every Thursday at 11 a.m. on heritageradionetwork.org or download the podcast on iTunes. Today, I am super psyched to continue this season's opening theme of interior design. Today, I am joined by interior designer John Call, who was named one of House Beautiful's top 10 up-and-coming designers to watch and who was all around just super, super inspiring. Um, I don't actually follow a lot of interior designers' work that closely because I feel like they tend to kind of look very similar. And I've always really loved John's work because I think it's something that has both architectural integrity and respect for a space, but also is very aware of sort of current trends and how to make those look timeless. So I'm super excited to talk to you today. Um, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much. It's so exciting. Thanks for the compliments. That's I'm a nice very, way to start out a cold day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's interesting. I mean, we'll, we'll get to your background and all that stuff but I think when I was whenever I interview somebody I go back and I look through all their interviews and I look through their work and I think the thing that kept striking me over and over about your work was the way that you really let like the architectural elements of a room shine and you've got a background in architecture um so I really want to talk about that but let's back up and do a, just the briefest bit of background so people who aren't familiar with you can get to know you um tell us uh where you grew up and what you wanted to be when you were younger. Well, I grew up in a small town uh, in Washington State called Gig Harbor, and it's about 50 miles south of Seattle, Washington. And uh, from the very, 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 very young age, uh, like five or six, I knew I wanted to be an architect. And one of my first loves in life was Frank Lloyd Wright. And we were in such a small town, it 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 was cut off from creativity and culture. And the only way that I could actually uh, satiate my, my need to learn about design was through magazines, was through home magazines, Metropolitan Home, Architectural Digest. And so I'd say... Please tell me you were reading those when you were young. No, it was ridiculous. (laughs) It's it's embarrassing. But my my family was even a little concerned because I'd save all my allowances, which was $7 a week, (laughs) and I would apply it towards the purchase of these fairly expensive magazines. And it was just so out of character for for, a young young guy in, in the town that I grew up in. But it's really what was the foundation to my career. That's so, I love that. What did you do with the magazines? I personally kept a folder where I collaged them on the front. I coveted them. I mean, that was my lifeline. That was my air. That was my oxygen. Being in a town where I wasn't surrounded by creative people or necessarily thought that I was connecting with at that time, just seeing things out inside the world, Vincent Wolf and other designers that kind of uh, could could spark my creativity and and also tell me that it was was okay to be creative. Uh, It was really just my lifeline. I coveted everyone. I remember that feeling. I grew up in a a smallish town in Virginia and like modern design was not really something people were doing and I remember getting uh, Metropolis magazine when I was in high school (laughs) which my dad read and my dad was like super um, art like into architecture and and advertising and things like that so that was my exposure to it and it was the first sign that I was like oh it's okay to like like super minimal things or things that look nothing like what I grew up with is like very traditional southern design right 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 and just to explore the world that way through interior seeing what France looks like seeing what Australia looks like and, and, and it's an influence with Asia and seeing what Asia looks like 
like. And you start understanding, you start getting these building blocks of design. And, and I learned it through a visual vocabulary. I think, how did you see that visual vocabulary connect to where you grew up? And I was reading through your interviews. I, I didn't really connect the time you were growing up in with like that giant boom that happened in Seattle of like all the big companies that started there, like Starbucks and big tech companies. It was a trip. I mean, Seattle was literally, I mean, for lack of a better word, such a kind of hippie town, mm-hmm. uh, I guess. That, that, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. But all of a sudden, when there was an influx of cash with all this big money, I think it turned into one of the most modern cities mm-hmm. in the entire world, if I may be so bold, because it was the only city at that time that had no uh, precedent. And they were deciding in that moment, in the 90s, what is culture, what is city, what is modern, what is home, what are all these things now? And they had the money to make it happen. And all of a sudden, you got Gary over there, and you got Rem Coolhouse, and you had this incredible burst of creativity that wasn't happening anywhere else, and it wasn't limited by what their parents did. So when I was there, that was right in the middle of Nirvana and Mm -hmm. and Starbucks (laughs) and all that stuff, it was the first time that I was exposed to affluence. Mm. And growing up as a young gay man uh, you know I went to the city outside of Gig Harbor when I got out of high school and the first thing I did is I worked in restaurants and retail I mean and that was my exposure to people and when I was working in retail I started seeing how people that had cash spent it Mm. how they made decisions what was important to them that moment that season that day that year and from there I started uh, getting my basic understanding my navigation through um, what product meant to people and identity. That's so interesting. Do you see a big shift now between the people then, not just time and style like that, and the way people invested their money and the way they invest it now? In, in Seattle or in general? In general, because I think, I mean, you've got an interesting slice of affluence there, mm-hmm. and you're working with, assume, like, fairly affluent clients yeah, yeah. now. Do you see sort of a difference in the way people invest, or do you think that, in general, people who have money are still investing in their homes in the same way? No, I think uh, with every generation, money's invested differently, and that's what makes uh, the artwork or the creativity so unique in the, uh, mm-hmm. that period. Right now, we're, we're going, uh, we're coming out of a faux modesty period, you know? <laughs> and, and that's why I think Restoration's connected, Restoration Hardware is mm-hmm. connected, and, and it, as it should. It's a beautiful company, does beautiful product, but it, the, the products that are in there have a, a, a built-in, inauthentic heritage to them. And it's been very comforting to mm-hmm. people. And I think during the recession, that was where people really wanted to have their heart and they hung it up and they invested heavily. And that's where affluence was. It was in gray. It was in Belgium. It was in uh, you know neutrals. Mm-hmm. Moving forward, I'm really excited because I think we're, we're reaching a tipping point on that. You know, There has to be a new voice. There has to be something that's going to excite us and pique our interest again. And I don't know what it is yet, but as a designer, I'm curiously and, and actively uh, trying to cultivate, you know, the next thing. I feel like no one's figured out what that next thing is. I keep asking all these interior designers that primarily because I would like to know myself. <laughs> and I feel like I, I've, for the last 10 years of being in this industry, I've been able to kind of figure out furniture-wise what I thought, right. where people were going. But right now, I feel like I have no idea what's next. That's why the industry, and that's why I started my company, to be mm-hmm. honest with you, Bonnie, because when I first came to New York and I was working in... Um, you know, larger companies that were named, that were blue chip, that were just taken over everything. It was really difficult to break into the industry. Mm -hmm. After the recession, all of a sudden, nobody knew what to do. Nobody had the answer. And I think none of us still do, to be frank with you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not uh, proposing that I do. But 
the one thing I know is the person with the next big idea is going to win. And mm-hmm. having that opportunity where everybody in the field, from Stephen Gambrell to myself to, you know, like I said, Vincent Wolf, mm-hmm. where we all are looking for an answer yeah. and a solution that's going to feel current and relevant and authentic and correct, that's fun because we're all running the same race. I think it's it's really interesting that you just use the word authentic because I think that's something that I've really struggled with in design. I'm very curious to get your opinion on. Um, I'm so glad you mentioned restoration hardware, which I think as a brand I've enjoyed working with, but I've been so intrigued by that sort of faux authenticity mm-hmm. that lots of brands are doing um, where it's like things are pre-aged and pre-whatever. What's your take on sort of the value of authenticity to a customer do you, or to a client? Do you feel like for the most part when you're working with a client, they are fine to embrace that sort of authenticity or do people tell can they tell the difference well to me it everybody's going to be faced with faux authenticity what's going to define you is where you think it's passable Mm -hmm. and where you have no tolerance for that and for me i swear to god that's the only reason why i'm in this industry is because it's a case-by-case situation Mm -hmm. i love getting to know people i love seeing their homes and where they invest their money and where they had a high threshold for pain and where they didn't and that's what makes the interiors interesting to me. It's not the color combinations necessarily. It's not the aesthetic. Mm-hmm. It's where they're showing their value system through the, the purchases they made. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to authenticity, I do think it's going to be the new modernism. Mm-hmm. I do think we need, uh, if you, I, I follow so many different things outside of interior design, and one of them's food for a long time. If you look at food, it, it, we all know now it's getting local, it's getting yeah. seasonal, it's getting uh, you, you know, more and more real. So why is interior design so false? It's a question I ask myself quite a bit. And I think in other industries, they've raised the bar. Mm -hmm. And, you know, interior design, because our work does take years and years and years and years to produce, Mm -hmm. I think it is a little bit slower sometimes to catch on to trends like that. But I think it's going to be impossible to ignore moving forward. People, when they go to Paris, want to see a Parisian interior that's authentic to the time and the place of where it's at. When they come to New York, they want to see the same exact thing. And so as designers, if we can really focus on what that means creatively and culturally and and create that vocabulary to comfort people Mm -hmm. and to make them feel more alive and more in tune with who they are and and i think that would be what i would call modernism that's such a good point i want you to talk about (laughs) that for like another hour before we take a break i want to ask you one quick follow-up question to that um i think it's an interesting point about how long it's taking design to sort of catch up to that idea of like local and what's what's seasonal in a way um, and and what's well-made and why you invest in that. What do you think is that price point? Because I found that most people seem to be understanding and embracing the idea of like, I'm going to pay a little bit more for local produce, organic produce, whatever it is. But for the last 10 years, I've been writing and trying to convince people that it's worth investing in furniture that's made locally, that's made by hand, that's, you know, a high quality product versus something that's cheap, but you're going to throw away in two years. And it's not getting through. Well, I mean, I mean that's a it's a touchy subject for me because I'm a little opinionated on it, and and, and I'm I glad like I'm hopefully this will be recorded <laughs> so I can listen to it in five years and, and find out if I'm a complete idiot or not. <laughs> but but my thought is this: I think unfortunately, uh, I've talked in the past about how media has really been the foundation and the building block of who I am and given me uh, the tools that I need. I think media also can can create an artificial saccharine sugar rush for mm. people where people are craving things, they're addicted to imagery, and they're consuming it so quickly, and they're not thinking 
thinking about what they're seeing. And right now, when you go online, when you go to a home tour, when you go to a home show, when you do anything home, when you go to a Target aisle and you look in the home section, there is so much stuff. Mm. How can any of us navigate through it and not go flipping crazy? So I think the <laughs> world right now is dying from a sugar rush. Mm. They're going to find out, just like when we were children, and our, our palates start to mature, that you don't need as much sugar to be satisfied, that you're actually craving something that has a little bit more substance or subst- uh, substance to mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm, I think that's where we are. I think as a culture, we're starting to go, you know what? I've seen the trends. I've seen ECOT. I've seen uh, all, all these things. I've seen Chevron. Chevron. Oh my God, <laughs> shoot me. And, uh, but I need something that feels more authentic, that, f- that keeps me satisfied longer. That's, I'm, I want to talk about this for like five days. Can you just stay here? You just want to stay for like a week? Just like we'll camp out at Roberta. I know. I'm so happy I'm at Roberta. Come on. Uh, We have to take a quick break. I'll be right back with John Call. And I have many, many more questions to ask you about what you just said. You're listening to Setback by Sleepies on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Brooklyn Slate Company is a collaborative effort from Brooklyn graphic designer Sean Tice and Parsons graduate student Christy Hedeke. After visiting Christy's family slate quarry in upstate New York in the spring of 2009, the two grabbed a few pieces for use as all-purpose boards back home in Brooklyn. They found a number of purposes for the slate and began gifting pieces to friends. The response was so overwhelmingly positive that the two struck out to produce a line of slate products. They now make regular trips to the family quarry in upstate New York to handpick their favorite pieces of black and red slate. Some of the slate is sourced from the quarry graveyard, a collection of odd-shaped pieces that were ultimately destined to be ground for use as road cover or baseball diamonds. They then transport the pieces to their studio in Red Hook, Brooklyn, where they do additional cutting and clean the stone to be food slate. Every single piece of packaging that comes with their products, from the envelope to the burlap bag, can be repurposed for other uses. The end result is a product completely unique in cut, shape, color, and overall presentation. For more information and to order, visit brooklynslate.com. Hey, welcome back to After the Jump. I'm your host, Grace Bonney, and today I'm speaking with interior designer John Call. And before the break, we were talking about the way that people haven't been able to catch on quite so much as they have with food to the idea of embracing local and things that are high quality, which often come with a higher price point. And you talked about sort of comparing it to the idea of like people having too much sugar and they're just like, it's, it's overly done and they don't need as much to be satisfied. What do you think is the way you hope to, at least with your clients, convince people or show people about that? I feel like with the way with like Pinterest and the way that people and I don't mean I'm not blaming Pinterest. I think it's just a great example of like there are 10 billion images in everybody's face all day, every day. Instagram, it's just like constant inspiration. And I think people are just consuming and they don't know how to stop. 
and they feel like it's also connected to this idea of like missing out on something. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think it's going to take to convince people of that? Or how do you show people that on like a case-by-case basis? Well, I really, I, I'm not sure that's my job necessarily. And, and I think it's going to happen naturally. Mm-hmm. I, I always relate, I always tell a story like this. Uh, when you see a young girl, maybe she's four years old, and she breaks into her mother's makeup kit in the bathroom, <laughs> she's going to go in there and she's going to take the lipstick and the eyeshadow and the rouge and the blush and the everything under the sun and put it all over her face, right? And then come out and talk to her parents and say, aren't I pretty? And she's going to think she's the most beautiful girl in the entire world. And what do you tell that little girl? You say you're the most beautiful girl in the entire world. Now, I'll tell you this much. In about 5, 10, 15 years, when she starts wearing makeup and she starts growing into it, she's going to be wearing less and less and less, and she's not going to need as much, right? Mm-hmm. More is not more. Now, I, I see. I, I look at that as maturation. Mm-hmm. And right now, we're at a point in the industry, specifically in America, because it's very unique to us, mm-hmm. where we're maturing, and we're kind of seeing it, and we're seeing the growing pains. I think we're going to naturally and intuitively start gravitating to things that feel more correct to us. And I, I'm not sure it's necessarily going to be a political movement. That's so interesting. <laughs> well, speaking of political movement, let's, let's talk about somebody that you brought up during our, our brief break, um, the all-in-powerful Kanye West. He <laughs> um, gave, a, gave a speech at Art Basel where he sort of called out the interior design industry for not innovating. Can you And you, you enjoyed this while it sounds like other people did not. Can you tell us what his main point was? It was a real divisive talk. And when I was down in Art Basel, uh, he was sitting on a board talking about the state of art and interiors and specifically talking to interior designers and architects about raising the bar. And w- where he kind of, uh, to preface, I'm not, I'm not going to say it quite the way he did, of course, but was that uh, in the United States, right now, if you think of the word American design, uh, the thing that should come to mind to most people, at least universally mm-hmm. in the world, is Ralph Lauren from mm-hmm. 1982. And he thought that was disappointing. He said in the world of music or art or food or any other creative medium, if we hadn't innovated since 1982, mm-hmm. uh, that people would be fired. And had a tendency to agree. I do think it's the job of this generation's creative talent to define culture and creativity and interiors and for that to be able to go down in a, in a, a book for kids from future generations to look at and to know what we as a culture, uh, you know, contributed. Mm-hmm. And if people are saying Ralph Lauren was the last contribution of substance, I think we are missing the mark. Mm-hmm. Is there anyone else that you're looking to that you think is inspiring? I, it's interesting. Like I never really thought about isolating American design versus like inter, like European design, but I do that all the time when I think about magazines. Right. When I think about shelter magazines, and I think about world of interiors versus like the nightmare that we're having in shelter publications in the U.S. right now, which is just like they're all bombing, they all look the same, and they all kind of look like blogs to me. Which in a way, I'm like, there should just be blogs and wait until you have like a really unique idea to put it in paper. I mean, and, uh, and I'm so sorry, I lost the point. What was the question? Oh, question about <laughs> sorry, I, I may have lost my own point there. Um, I'm I'm interested to know what you think like is being contributed by European design that's so cutting edge right now. Like, who are you inspired by? It doesn't have to be European. It could be Australian or yeah, African. Absolutely. No, I mean, but what we're looking at when we look at media from mm-hmm. other countries is societies that have evolved for a lot longer. Mm-hmm. And they, they've just grown into it. And whether you agree with it or not, it is a truth. Mm-hmm. For example, in Paris, that if you remodel a bathroom or a kitchen, you're not going to use uh, appliances that look old. 
Mm. You're you're always going to update with a modern bathroom and kitchen in Paris. That's what you do. And it's because why would you bring in something that looked like you could uh, get a a pail underneath it and and get water (laughs) out in the middle of the yard? They don't understand, uh, I find anyway, and I may be wrong, but I believe that they they don't find that type of charm with those fixturings for in bathrooms and, and, mm-hmm. and kitchens that look old. And, and I think that's really charming. And because of that, they get a dissonance in their interiors mm-hmm. where you can tell the layers of when the remodel happened, of when that piece was brought in. And they, I think that's where they get their richness from. The issue is once that's published in an editorial magazine and then it comes to the United States and it's uh, interpreted into a brand new spec home in Nebraska. Mm. And people start copying that editorial, but they yeah. didn't understand the process that went into getting it there that makes it feel so rich. Do you think if people understood the process a bit more, they would get it and sort of evolve into that way of designing for what's appropriate for the space they're in? Or do you, f- I feel like you Mar- Americans are just like uniquely not interested in the process. And it's just like they want the before, they want the after, and they don't want to know what happens in between. I, I, I think that's absolutely true. But you know what? I, I, I don't think that we should, you know, hit ourselves with too hard of a stick because I, <laughs> I, I, I do want to back away from that because we all, all of us are allowed our own creative path or our own journey and none of it's wrong. And so I want everybody to feel empowered with this process and not like at any point of the education process that they've fallen off the wagon. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I want to say is, is something like this as well. With fashion, Americans have learned. It's a completely optimistic story. In the 1970s, when you had a Yves Saint Laurent uh, fashion runway show, the American um, rich people <laughs> would go over <laughs> and buy entire looks off the runway. Mm-hmm. Uh, look 16, look 17, look 24. And the women knew it by number. And they wore everything from head to toe. We learned in the 80s and 90s that you mix. Mm-hmm. That you go to the Gap, and when Sharon Stone wore that great turtleneck at the Academy Awards and just blew the you know the world to pieces, that you go to uh, you know the Goodwill and you find something and you start accumulating pieces that make you feel good, that express your personality, and you mix and match them on a daily basis to communicate with the world who you are, how you feel, and how you want to be treated. And that lesson needs to come home, mm-hmm. literally come home. And I think we can do it. We can find those pieces that each of us wants to have that we gravitate towards. And whether they're new, borrowed, stolen, or, or, or whatever, they, we can bring them into our houses and make an interior that is actually superior to the ones that we've been sold. I think that's a really, really interesting point. And I think a lot of people are sort of stymied by just good old fashioned fear of like taking a risk. It's of, scary. Of, or also just being honest about what they actually like. I've, I've found that like even when I'm working with somebody like we're reading our office right now, I feel this like weird sense of shame of saying like this weird funky thing that I've held on to for like 10 years and it's been hidden in the closet is actually the thing I love most in my office. And like, why shouldn't I use that as a jumping off point for inspiration? And Stuff is the craziest thing in the entire world. We all have so many associated memories with it and associated values. And that's why interiors are interesting. That's what makes them beautiful. It's not the value. It's not the color. It's not the quality. It's the story behind it. And I think we all need to honor that and learn how to do it better. How do you pull stories out of your clients? How do you make them feel comfortable to embrace the things that they really love or maybe just help them find that voice? It really is um, 
a push and pull kind of relationship with an interior designer uh, and their client. I mean, there's going to be times th- uh, that I'm the antagonist, quite frankly, <laughs> and and that's just what I've signed up for. Uh, and there's going to be times where I'm very modest and I'm going to tread very lightly because I understand it's a sensitive issue. Mm-hmm. And I think in understanding um, the ebb and flow of creativity with people and being patient with uh, the process, that's where it starts really scratching away and building the trust that's needed in order to render their dreams into reality. That's so, I mean, I, I can't imagine how much sort of therapy is involved in working <laughs> with somebody and pulling something out like that. Um, what do you think, like, if someone's making over, let's say they're making over one room, what's the average length and time of, like, that process? I think people don't quite understand, like, how involved interior design is and how much back and forth there is. It depends. I mean, the, the in general, it's about six to nine months yeah. of creative work on paper. And that's, I mean, to somebody who works online, and I feel like the average person who's, like, in their 20s and 30s right now that seems like an eternity it makes no sense and then that's not including the lead times which are 12 to 18 weeks so you're looking at a two-year process to do minimum to do any of the editorial that you're looking at in magazines yeah and i think it's so interesting because those people who have those like what we're calling finished in air quotes um homes are end up being very happy with things and stick with them for a long time and i think it's partially because they've spent so much time working with somebody to really think through every decision every decision every decision absolutely and and those homes are they're just a different thing i mean i used to work at hgtv for a little while as a creative producer for uh some of their television uh segments and it, it was interesting then doing a home in a matter of hours. Literally, the creative team only had hours to put these things together. Um, I was paid incentives to work fast, so yeah. I worked very fast. <laughs> 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 but it was cool. I mean, because I got uh, looseness uh, mm-hmm. at that time. I didn't uh, stress about the other things. I, time is an interesting um, thing for creativity. What, Good ha- stuff can come quickly. I don't want to scare everybody yeah. away. No, I, I think it can too. What do you think th- are the keys to working quickly? Because I think they're different. For If you have enough time to work, I think I would make different priorities than if I was working quickly. Work in a comfort zone. Work with familiar things. Mm-hmm. Don't try anything new. It's just like a dinner party. You know, yeah. you, you don't want to start a new recipe five minutes before the guests come. That's going to be a failure. Do something you're really comfortable with and, then, and knock, them off, uh, knock their socks off. It may not be the fanciest thing in the entire world, but it's going to be done with confidence and rendered perfectly. So let, let's show strengths and not weaknesses. That's a great idea. All right. Well, speaking of strengths, we're just about out of time, but I want to talk about some of the things that you trust, um, that you go to over and over again. I think that one of the things I love about interior designers is they have brands, makers, colors, anything that they go back to that they feel like are the backbone of what they do. These are your go-to recipes. Um, What are some of the things you go to over and over again? And this doesn't have to be a particular brand. It could just be like, I love going to a great gray paint. I love going to always using wallpaper in this type of room. Are there any things you go back to over and over? Well, uh, or not. <laughs> it's funny. I, there are a few, but I learned recently when you meet the Buddha, kill the Buddha. And it's a philosophy <laughs> of once you start believing in something too much, you have to rid yourself of it before it becomes a crutch. And I mean, my company's new. It's two years. But I, I have found it. I do return to things. Uh, Bolon flooring, which is a Scandinavian uh, vinyl flooring product, which almost looks like tatamis in room. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I'm addicted to. I, I can't get enough of it. I think mid-century lighting pieces, the mm-hmm. scale is there. We lost scale somewhere around 1971. 
one. And so to, to get a 40-inch lamp, you have to go to the 50s. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're just, to me, they're just amazing. And when you start looking at wall colors, there's just one wall color that I, I generally love, which is China White from Benjamin Moore. It's just the shade of unglazed porcelain. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have any pink or yellow to mm-hmm. it. And it's just the perfect neutral. Uh, I love a sheer drapery. I just think what it does with light, how it diffuses it, just makes me look 10 years younger and five pounds uh, lighter. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I'm always conscientious of that. But there are a few standbys that I always go to. But but like I said, when you meet the Buddha, kill the Buddha. So I am looking to, to, to cultivate new voices and new trends in my own career. That's a great, great advice to end on. Before we leave, I want to ask you one last question. Um, what are you most excited to work on next, whether this is an individual project or what are you just excited about in your industry? I know we've, we've been talking for the last half hour about things that are sort of challenges for the industry, but what do you think is exciting and new that's working that's coming up? Well, for me right now, I've, I've had some opportunities um, to, to talk to people and quite frankly, educating the public is what excites me. The work that I create in my company is just meant to be a litmus test in proof that what I'm saying isn't absolutely a crock of crap <laughs> that it does work that if you keep a simple interior it will have time to grow that it you can move into it through all phases of your life no matter who you are and you can start that when you're 19 and until the end of time you're going to be happy with it and those types of things and, and speaking with people and trying to find out what feels current and relevant and honest and true in interiors that 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 turns me on and that's the conversation i want to keep having with people so the more i can do it i love it and, and that's why today meant so much Thank you so much for being here. I feel like I want to vote for you for like the president of the United States of Design. <laughs> I'm so inspired by you. It's just I could listen to you talk for days and days on end. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Bonnie. For everyone listening, you can check out John at MrCallDesigns.com. You can catch him on Twitter at MrCallTweets or on Facebook at MrCallDesigns. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next Thursday. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.